As you're seated, please open the Word of God to second, sorry, first Peter. We're still in first Peter. First Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be studying verses 11 and 12 this morning. Uh, we've continued this study of first Peter, and uh, it's been a blessing to me. I hope it has been for you as well. Challenging and encouraging. First Peter chapter 2, and beginning in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Father, we pray that as we come to your word, that you would visit us with your spirit as he would work through your word in our hearts and minds to change us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, to much of the world, Americans can be pretty recognizable when we travel. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. People in other countries say they can easily pick out Americans in their country in their own country in particular, but even when people from a different country travel to another country and they see Americans, they can still pick us out, <laughs> even in other people's cultures. And some of that is just cultural differences that aren't bad things. One of the giveaways that I've been told is it's just a dead giveaway for an American is running shoes or tennis shoes or um, sneakers or you know whatever you want to call them. Apparently, uh, Americans tend to wear running shoes when we're traveling. And why not, really? They're comfortable, right? You're, when you're traveling, you're usually doing a lot of walking around. It makes sense. That's not a bad thing. Um, another giveaway, apparently, for Americans is that we're known for smiling a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Barry. <laughs> Again, how, how would that be a bad thing? It's not, right? It's not a bad thing. It's just apparently different, something that Americans are known for. Another common one is that Americans really like ice in their drinks. <laughs> right? <laughs> Apparently, it's, it's a little funny for people that Americans, when they walk into a restaurant, expect a glass of water to come automatically. They expect it to have ice, and they expect it to be free. <laughs> that's, that's apparently funny. But other ways... Other ways can stem from just not being aware of differences in culture or, or putting out the conception that Americans just don't care about differences in culture. In my time in the Air Force, I traveled to two different countries in particular, South Korea for one year and Germany for a couple of weeks. And obviously, I became a little bit more acquainted with the customs in South Korea being there for a year than Germany in a couple of weeks. But the differences are pretty big between those countries. One thing that helped to avoid some of those stereotypes was having those mandatory briefings where you learn certain things about the culture. So you don't just barge out there and start acting American in the middle of Korea <laughs> or Germany. Learning short phrases can be helpful. Hello, goodbye, thank you. Um, certain norms. In Korea, you, you don't hand somebody something like this. You, you use two hands or, or you support a hand and uh, your arm and, and give someone something like your, your debit card if you're buying something. In certain parts of Korea, you don't hand them your debit card until you're done haggling over the price, right? You don't, you don't want to just give them your card and then they'll charge you the full price. But in Germany, stores would prefer that you deal in cash oftentimes rather than a debit card. And don't try to go pick anything up on a Sunday because by law, 
most stores are closed on Sundays. Yay. <laughs> Don't jaywalk in Germany. Always use a crosswalk. But in Korea, we just walked all over the streets and wherever we wanted to. So those are all fine. Those are no problem. Those are, there, there are no issues with those types of things. Some things are just different or, or normal to them and not normal to us. But some things are moral or conscience issues. Some things cause us to pause, and that was true in South Korea for me. I enjoyed being there. I, I didn't enjoy being there without my family. That was the unaccompanied tour part. You left your family behind for a year to go there, so I didn't like that part, but I tried to take some time to enjoy different parts of South Korea. If you ever happen to find yourself in Seoul, the capital, visit the Seoul Tower. That was nice. It's a radio and TV broadcast tower, but it has a restaurant and an observatory. It's great views all of the, if you happen to find yourself <laughs> in Korea. Uh, but there were some parts that I intentionally did not go experience because of a moral or a conscience issue. One of the commonly highly recommended sites to see is to go to one of the more than 900 Buddhist temples in the country. And the temples are usually very beautifully designed. They're constructed in very scenic locations. Uh, there are festivals that, that bring elaborate decorations. And, and really just God's blooming creation all around is, is, I'm told it's breathtaking at certain times of the year, some, some of these temples. And some of them are pretty, some of the buildings themselves are amazing. They're, some of them are built with no nails or glue or um, anything holding it together, just good engineering and, and construction. So they're highly recommended by people that have been to them. But I intentionally avoided them because of what you're supposed to do when you visit them. It's not just respectful to remove your shoes. It's not just cleanliness. There is an element um, that's not spoken necessarily when you visit the, the temple, but you do remove your shoes, and part of that is because of the belief in karma, that you can bring in uncleanness that you've tracked in from the ground, not dirt or things, but an unclean karma that you could bring into the temple. When you walk into the temple, there is a Buddha statue right at the entrance, and you are supposed to bow to the Buddha statue. Um, when you're there, there are certain rules that are polite, but before you leave, you're expected to give a donation of money. And then again, at the Buddhist statue, you bow, and then you walk backwards going out of the temple so you don't turn your back on the Buddha. Now, some of that seems maybe just not all that important, right? Just little things that you got to do so you can see the inside of the temple and all the sights. But for me, when I was there, I saw all of that as just being a little too accepting and supportive of the teachings of Buddhism, giving money to support the teachings and, and bowing and different things. So I just, I just didn't go. I decided not to go. There were plenty of other things to do and places to see, but I thought, for me, it was important to remember that, that I'm not just an ambassador from America, but for Christ. So because of my convictions, I had to choose either between going and resisting, you know, and, and putting up a front to, to show I don't believe any of this stuff, or I could just abstain from going. And really what I was thinking might happen was I, I thought that I might go and I might just kind of give in. And ju just so I could see the inside of the temple, right? I just minimize your reservations, dismiss your conscience, compromise because of a desire to see what's inside. But that's dangerous to do that to your conscience, isn't it? So listen, brothers and sisters, the, uh, the point of all of that is that that's what life is going to be like for us in this world. We have a homeland. We're part of a nation of people, as we saw in previous verses. We are a new race of people, and it's no longer the 
country that we're born in physically. Um, it's no longer the place where our citizenship is physically. We live here in this world as foreigners. As Peter calls us here in our verses, sojourners and exiles. One day we're going to go home forever, and we count the days to when Jesus returns or calls us home through death. But until then, we live here in this world temporarily. And God has given us all kinds of things to enjoy and to be thankful for. We eat the food, we work, we live, we do all the things we do while we're here. But there are many things that we should not do, that we should abstain from because we don't want it to violate our conscience or to draw us away from the mission that God has for us here. We are temporarily stationed here in this foreign place. And, and our mission here is the glory of our God through love and obedience to holiness. The world is going to offer alternatives to living for our Savior, our King, and those, going, those alternatives are going to be enticing. They will tug at us. The world will cast hooks into us and try to drag us away, and it will place enormous amounts of pressure and unrelenting force on our minds from the world, the things of the world. So how can we be holy in this world? How can Christians live lives upstream when everybody else is going downstream and they're trying to drag us along with them. And, and how are we supposed to bring others with us upstream? upstream? How, how is this going to work? There are two answers in our passage. Number one, Peter shares with us from verse 11 that holiness demands a lifelong war. Holiness demands a lifelong war. Now the first thing we need to see before we get into the war talk <laughs> is how Peter addresses the people that he's writing to. He calls them beloved, people I love. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 1, these people, they were scattered across a huge area. They had diverse cultures and languages. Realistically, though, Peter had probably never met a single one of them, right? He hadn't been to that part of the world yet. Uh, he had probably ne never met any of them, yet he's calling them beloved, pe people I love that I care for deeply. Now, how is that possible? Well, because of our relationship with Jesus. Because we've been brought together uniquely and permanently through Jesus. And again, Peter points us back to the fact that we're together. We're sojourners. We are exiles here. We don't, we don't belong to the world. You know, we're stationed here temporarily. But we're, we're citizens of a different place. We, we have a new nation. We're a new people. We have a new allegiance now. A different king to live for, for his glory. The one who saved us, saves us, and will save us. We live for our Lord. And the world has the same kind of allegiance to a different Lord, to the, the king of this world. And so this sets up a basic difference between believers and unbelievers. We, we serve different masters. We have different allegiances, and they're not compatible, are they? The lines are drawn between us, and so our lives will be different. And so Peter says, beloved, I urge you. He says, I urge, this is a, this is a calling alongside, this is a, an exhortation of encouragement for us believers. It's a heartfelt plea to get on board with what he's urging for us to do. What is it that he wants us to do? He says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, we know what abstain means. It means to, to not do, to keep away, keep on avoiding something. But what does he mean by the passions of the flesh? The flesh means what's typical to human nature. And passions are what we greatly desire, the things that we long for. And so he's saying here, um, keep away from longing for 
what's typical to human nature. That's another way of saying what, what Peter says here. And it sounds an awful lot like what Jesus said is the way to follow him. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. That's right. That, that's what we are to be doing. Deny or abstain from what might come naturally to us in the world for the sake of following Jesus. So that's what Peter leads this passage with. Now, why doesn't he just come out and just give us the command? Why does he give us this, this plea, this urgent plea? Well, because he's already given us the command to do this. You may remember chapter 1, verse 14. You may remember this. He says, as children of obedience, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That was the command. He said, don't do it. Just don't let yourself be conformed to those passions. Before we came to know the truth and believe the truth in Jesus so that he caused us to be born again, we were living in ignorance of that truth. There were, there were passions of ignorance, and we acted just like the world because we were of the world. We acted like them. We spoke like them. Their culture was our culture, and we did what they did. But now that we have been born again into the people of God, we're not conformed any longer to the passions of our former life, our former ignorance of the truth. Uh, Peter calls it also the feudal ways that we inherited from our forefathers in verse 18 of chapter 1. Here in chapter 2, it's uh, flesh, passions of the flesh. Chapter 4, Peter will say human passions. So there are different ways of referring to the same things, the things that we used to do, the things of the world. And so as he begins in this passage, and he's, he's going to be leading us through different areas of life and what love and holiness looks like, he begins with the constant need to abstain from what comes naturally to us in our flesh. Now, the first things we probably think about are sin, you know, evil things. Let's stay away from all those things. Okay, that's pretty obvious. But the word is not actually confined only to really bad things or sin, bad, evil stuff. Sometimes our passions, our strong desires can be for good things, can't they? We can really want something good. But when our strong desires become strong desires for the wrong reasons... Or when our strong desires overcome our desire to please the Lord, even desires for good things can become wrong. They can become fleshly passions that, that are not leading us to glorifying the Lord. That's why Peter is warning us about the dangerous fleshly passions that should be abstained from. If our desires are for good things, then we, we need to make sure that they arise from spiritual passions for our Lord the desires to love and obey him. And they need to be constantly motivated by his glory, by his greatness, not ours, right? So all of our passions, all of our strong desires, we need to evaluate the source of them. You know, when we really want something, we're really looking forward to something, we're longing for something, we need to stop and think, now where is that coming from? <laughs> Why do I want that so much? And this is where we start to understand the war aspect of what Peter says here. He says, these passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. The meaning of waging war here is actually the word for soldiers. And they're waging a long-term campaign of war against your soul. This is strong language he's using. This isn't just a battle. He says, this isn't just a little skirmish here and there. This is all-out war by soldiers of passions fighting against your, your, your soul. See, because we've changed sides from the world to the Lord, 
our flesh that craves being like the world and enjoying those fleshly passions fights against us ourselves. It fights against our own souls with overwhelming passions. And those passions are the soldiers that are constantly battling against us. They're constantly fighting and trying to draw us in. And it's, it's amazing. Your flesh craves what, will, what would ultimately kill you because that's all it knows. Sin and death. That's what the flesh knows. And so we will have skirmishes. We will have scuffles where temptation gets concentrated in a certain area. And then there will be battles and, and full-scale operations with just all-out assaults coming from all directions and temptations trying to draw us into sin. But however the attacks come, the idea here is that the war is not going to finish until we're home with the Lord. It's never going to be finished fighting, pulling, tugging, hooking, deceiving, trying to kill us. It's a long-term war over our souls. Why are you making such a big deal out of this? It should be obvious, right? This is something that we're blinded to so often. It's something that we just don't, we don't see very well. Now, there is encouragement. There is encouragement here in 1 Peter. You remember chapter 1, verse 9, the outcome of all of this is your salvation, the salvation of your souls. Uh, according to chapter 1, verse 22, your soul has been purified by your obedience to the truth, right? Our souls have a new shepherd and overseer in chapter 2, verse 25, that we'll get to, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks. A shepherd and overseer who cares for us, who loves us and guides us and protects us. According to chapter 4, verse 19, we entrust our soul to the Creator. So there is hope. There is encouragement. Our soul is not our own anymore, is it? When our soul belonged to us, it was infected with sin, and it was, it was drawn to fleshly passions, and, and it was prone to falling for temptation, and, and to live there and just stay that way, with no way of finding its own way out. But when Jesus saves our soul, he becomes the owner of our soul. He owns us. He's our master, and he's a good master, a good Lord. So Peter is urging us to see fleshly passions for what they really are. They war against your soul. The things that promise pleasure. The things that, that, are, that look so appealing and so enticing are fleeting pleasure, Hebrews eleven twenty five 25 says. It, it's not lasting. It's not a, a, a pleasure that will last and, and be forever. They lead straight to sin, which leads straight to death, James 1 teaches us. Verses 14 and 15 there. They bring division and strife and death. So see this for what it is. The, the fleshly passions, they're not just little things that won't hurt us and, and that don't hurt anybody else. It's sin. As Pastor Tom prayed for us this morning that the Lord would, would renew us and, and re give us a, a renewed passion for, for our belief in the Lord and for sharing our testimony and sharing the gospel with people, sometimes we need a wake-up call, brothers and sisters. And here's a wake-up call. God's not okay with our sin. God hates sin. God hates sin. Sin, Proverbs 6, there are six things the Lord hates, even seven, that are an abomination to him. He hates those things. It's not just those six or seven things. Zechariah 8, 17 says, do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. To really understand, it's not just the bad things that we do, but it's the bad thing called sin that infects us and becomes us, and we become the object of God's wrath. Psalm 11.5 says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence, 
Psalm 5, 5 says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. And we who would submit to the Lord must also hate what he hates. Proverbs 8, 14 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Psalm 97, 10, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. We need to encounter this anew, <laughs> the awfulness of sin. Be shocked by this. Be humbled by sin. Hold on to this aspect of it. Don't, don't dismiss fleshly passions as just little things, right? Just justifiable, just a needed break. It's not a big deal. Don't excuse ourselves from falling for these things. These fleshly passions are soldiers warring against our souls and warring against our God. You know, it's heartbreaking when I hear Christians say, and, and it's heartbreaking because I know that I've said it and I've thought it myself. You know, I just needed a break. <laughs> I just, I, you know, I, I fell into something, you know, I, I, I shouldn't have done that. Fill in the blank, whatever it is that you, you have a tendency to turn to. What, what is it that you turn to? Uh, you know, I just turned on the TV. I, I, I just took that pill. I took the drink. I did the, the puff. I mean, whatever it is that we turn, I just needed a break. What do we need a break from <laughs> when we're giving glory and living for the glory of our God? You needed a break from, give, from loving Jesus more than yourself? Why do we need a break from that? Uh, well, I needed a break from pleasing the Lord Jesus who saved me by his perfect life and death and suffering and resurrection. Th this battle is hard, and, and we're not all powerful. We'll need some rest. <laughs> we'll need some breaks. But, but our times of rest and our breaks should not be falling into what we've been fighting so hard to resist. It, it's a big deal to, to sin. Jesus had to die because of my sin, right? So, so he, Peter's telling us, look, this is a war over our minds. These fleshly passions, they're not just little things. This is serious stuff. Okay, so when I do fall, then how do I deal with it? How do we deal with sin in our lives? Do, what's our answer? Just, well, just ignore it, right? I mean, that's what we want to do. Pretend it didn't happen. Or here's a big one for Christians, really. Just assume or presume forgiveness, right? It's just a given. I'm forgiven. So I'll just get over it. Just excuse it or whatever we do. I'll just do better next time. That's a big one for us, right? That's not how we deal with sin. Brothers and sisters, God tells us how to deal with sin. It's repent. It's confess it to the Lord. Say the same thing that he said and then turn away from it. It's saying, Lord, I did what you hated what you hate. I did, I did what offended you. I submitted to, to the old master of sin and death and passions and lust. And God, I know that I'm forgiven in Jesus already, but please forgive me so that I can have my fellowship with you restored and, and with my brothers and sisters. So Peter says, recognize fleshly passions for what they are, dragging us, pulling us away from our Lord. They're, they're temptations to fleeting pleasure and they're waging a war. They need to be repented of when we fall for them. Okay, so uh, we've fallen for them. We've, we've repented of them. How do we continually fight? What do we do to keep on guard against this? Well, remember back in chapter 1 still, when Peter gave us this command, he said back in verses 13 and 14, when he started pleading with us to remember this and do, he said our major weapon is preparing our mind for action and being sober-minded. What were we to do? Set your hope actively, again and again, hoping fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he says that the major weapon, what we can do to fight against this is to fill our minds with the truth of the grace of Jesus. 
Fill your mind with real hope in the powerful grace of Jesus. That's the major weapon that we have to change our mind. Again, the war is against our mind and our souls, so we get our mind right by hoping fully in the truth of the grace of Jesus, not being conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. But we're holy as he who called us is holy. And we learned the battle, the war, is in our mind. When our mind is thinking rightly, Peter says, then you will be holy as he who called you is holy. Our behavior will follow. Um, this is a consistent teaching in the New Testament. You know, if I'm looking at my life and I don't see holiness, I don't see love, I don't see the things I should be seeing, what's wrong? Do I need to try harder? No, I need to fix the way that I'm thinking. Paul teaches the same thing in Titus 2, and he makes the same connection. He says in Titus 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, and here's the way that Paul says it, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what Paul says. But do you hear the connection, whether we're talking about Peter or Paul, the connection between where our hope is and how we live? Whether we're in Titus or 1 Peter or anywhere in the New Testament, our actions reveal what's going on in our minds and our hearts and where our hope is. If our hope, our thoughts, our affections, what we're longing for, what we want and desire are in the grace of God and Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our actions are going to be affected by that. They'll be leading to holiness to godliness, to Christ-likeness, to self-controlled, upright, and godly, as Paul says. We'll renounce worldly passions, the language of Paul in Titus. We'll renounce the passions of the flesh here in 1 Peter. We'll place our hope in the grace of God. But if we hold on to worldly passions, those passions of the flesh, not only will we not be living lives of holiness and love, we're really opening our mind and heart to the ravaging effects of sin. And it's against our own soul. We're taking off all of our armor, we're laying down any weapons in the middle of an all-out battle and war, and our souls are the cost of that war. So Peter says, abstain. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Just keep away from them. Beloved brother, and sister. See them for what they are, repent when you mess up, and then fix your mind and heart on the hope of God's grace in Jesus to fight against them. Now, there are a lot of ways that we can do that. God gives us a lot of different ways to do that. The primary way is to be in his word. This is, this is what drowns out the wisdom of the world and the, the empty philosophy of man. Pray to the Lord God who wrote this word. Pray that the Holy Spirit would work in you and protect you and guide you. Um, sing. I'm amazed. You know, I can listen to worship music all morning long, and then I can, I can get into the car, and somebody will have the radio on. It's a, it's a secular song, and what song gets stuck in my head after listening and singing to worship music all morning long, and I get into the car? What is the song that will stick in my head the one five seconds of the clip of the secular song that I heard, right? It's drown out in our minds the things that come from the world. Get around other believers and listen to them as they help point you to Christ. We all need to drown out all of that with the truth. 
all of this replaces what the world advises and talks about and sings and does that's so enticing to our flesh. We're engaged in this battle in our mind, but we've got allies all around us and our brothers and sisters. So we need to be helping one another in this battle. And we need to be serving one another. We need to be helping one another, mowing the lawn of somebody that can't or you know, bringing groceries, you know, tangible needs, cleaning houses, whatever it's, whatever it's going to be that can help one another. But our major, our priority in helping one another needs to be in this battle, helping one another in this battle for our mind. This is our priority. So holiness demands a lifelong war. That's the first thing Peter tells us. Number two, he, sell, he tells us here that holiness draws others to God. He says in verse 12 that holiness draws others to God. Now these two verses may not appear to be related in our English translations, but in the Greek they're actually just one sentence, and this word keep is a present participle. So really it says, I urge you to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which war against your soul, keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Peter's actually, it, it's a continuation of thought that, that it shows the outcome of the war that you're waging in your mind. As we said, the war, your actions, your words betray the state of the war that's going on in your mind. So how are you doing in that battle? That'll come out in the way that you speak and act. So as you abstain from the passions of your flesh, you will be keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That's the sense. We will be those characterized by conduct that is honorable. The word honorable there is the word for something good. It, it's beautiful. It's profitable. It's good and excellent. That's what our conduct is. In the Greek, he could have chosen the word agathos, which is qualitatively good, but it doesn't always look all that good. It's like going to the dentist, right? That's, that's a good thing to do, but it doesn't always feel very good. It doesn't always seem like a good thing, right? That's the word agathos. But, but there's this word that Peter uses, which is kalos. And it also means qualitatively good. It is a good thing. But it also has the appearance of goodness and beauty and honor and attractiveness. So he says your conduct is attractively beautiful and good when you're not falling for fleshly passions. Conduct is referring to the pattern of our life, the, the whole pattern of our life, the way that we live when we're out and about and talking and walking and doing everything that we're doing. We're not just doing something good once in a while. You know, we don't occasionally try to do something nice. It's the overall pattern of our life, continual goodness and beauty that's honorable. And it's the same word for conduct that he used in chapter 1, verse 15. You also be holy in all your conduct. And so Peter's talking about every area of our life. Now, this is only possible as we live by the strength of God's grace. Now, Peter's not teaching a legalistic list of do's and don'ts. Do you see things here? He says, do this, do this, don't do that, make sure you don't do that. You know, I mean, here's the rules, right? He says, fix your mind and your heart on the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and your life is going to follow what you're thinking about and where your hope is. You'll desire to love and obey. Where is all this lived? Well, who's going to be watching this? He says, we're doing this, we're living this among the Gentiles. Now, it's a very Jewish way of referring to those people who are not God's people. I was by birth a Gentile, right? But it's Peter's way of pointing us back to the basic difference between those who are God's people and those who are not. But Lord willing, we'll be by our influence on them. We are God's chosen people, protected and loved. They're not, but they can be by the same grace that brought us in. 
Peter's saying live our lives and the way that we live them, we're supposed to be living them in the world among the Gentiles for the purpose of them seeing your holy life, your different life, your goodness, your good deeds. Really, Christians shouldn't be going out building convents where we huddle together in our little compound and, you know, we be Christians to each other and, and just, you know, the world can just do whatever it does. He says we're, we're among the Gentiles. As we were reminded this morning when Pastor Kyle read from John 17, Jesus said, they're in the world. <laughs> he said to the Father, they're in the world. We are in the world. And he says, in fact, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Jesus didn't want us to come out of the world yet until he calls us home. He prayed that we would be kept from the evil one. He, he prayed for our protection, but not our removal. But if we are going to follow the passions of our flesh, well, then we're not going to be protected from the evil one because we're getting outside of what the Lord wanted for us and how he prayed for us. You know, keep them away from the evil one. Well, I'm, I'm going to keep them from the evil one, but they keep heading back to the evil one, right? They keep getting dragged off into those things. So we're in the world, we're living among the Gentiles, but we abstain from the passions of the flesh, which leads to or results in keeping our conduct beautifully and attractively good so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, same word, and glorify God on the day of visitation. The goal here is that no matter what they say, in the day of visitation, that means when God gives them the opportunity, he visits them with the gospel, he brings them the truth, they will remember those of us who have believed the gospel and our changed lives of honorable conduct, and they will glorify God. That, that glorify God means to honor, to adore, to worship God. Unbelievers can't do that. So Peter's talking about them being converted because God has visited them with the truth after they've seen the lives of holy Christians living different lives. The honorable, good conduct of true believers will be beckoning them to submit and believe the gospel. In the meantime, Peter says, they'll speak against you as evildoers. To speak against it means to blab about. <laughs> it means to slander. It, it, and, and they will do it to you all, all of us together, again, as evildoers. Did, was that happening in the first century to Christians? Were Christians slandered in, in the first century? Well, yes, they definitely were. They were assumed at the beginning of Christianity, they were assumed to be just a sect of Judaism, and there was a strong anti-Semitism even then. Um, some believed that Jewish people and the sect of Christianity within Judaism would capture a Greek person, sacrifice him, eat his entrails, and swear eternal hostility against Greek people. That was, that was a rumor that flew around against Christians in the first century. Christians were accused of cannibalism because of the Lord's Supper. As we partook this way, this is my body, eat. <laughs> this is my blood, drink. They were accused of killing and eating children during the Lord's Supper. They were accused of incest and orgies for religious worship. They were accused of killing the economy because they were taking away trade of idols. So all the people that were mining the metal and forming the metal and selling the idols, all that part of their economy was going away as Christians converted from paganism. They were accused of destroying families because non-Christians would say, get out of here, Christian. I, I don't want anything to do with you. And the Christian would say, I've got to follow my Lord instead of caving. And so they would break up families. They were accused of disturbing society by encouraging slaves to be free. They were accused of disturbing society because they were not loyal to Caesar. They would not worship Caesar and call him Lord 
their Lord and our Lord is Jesus. So they wouldn't bow in worship to Caesar. A Roman philosopher by the name of Celsus said of Christians that they were, quote, like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nests or frogs holding a symposium amid a swamp or worms in a convention in a corner of mud, end quote. Christians were slandered in the first century. But people joined the church anyway. People came to the Lord anyway, despite the slander, because there was nothing to it. Because when they actually got around Christians, they saw a difference in their life. And they didn't see any of that evil. They didn't see any of that slander. They saw an attractive goodness and a holiness live for the glory of their God. So they would join in. What about today? Are Christians slandered today? Are we accused of being evildoers? Christianity has been labeled by some as harmful to children. Some have even pondered whether it should be recognized as abusive to children. You know, it damages their self-esteem to tell them that they're sinners. It abuses them with trauma to tell them that God killed his own son to save us from our sins. I'm not making this up. These are, these are accusations leveled against Christians. Christians are labeled as anti-science and willfully ignorant because we don't believe in random chance and fate to bring about the creation of the universe. Christians are slandered as being on the wrong side of history for their perpetuation of patriarchy and gender binaries and calling homosexuality a sin. Christians are accused of being hateful and bigoted for universal truth claims of sin and morality, of holiness and sinfulness. We're seen as violent, backward, old-fashioned. We're told we just need to drop all of that in the name of love, accept and embrace everyone. Yes, we are slandered today as evildoers. But our battle is not against the people that are slandering what we believe or what we do. It's not against what they're saying. We're not battling for self-defense. Peter doesn't say, okay, now pick up your shields and defend all those claims, right? We're battling the war in our minds so that our conduct remains good and honorable and holy because holy conduct will speak louder than unholy words leveled against us. Now, we need to think about this. We need to consider this because often we're not prepared when this happens. And some of us, some of us are deeply offended when people talk about us behind our backs. As a Christian, Peter's telling us this is going to happen. Why do we get so upset when it does happen? It could be. We need to, again, think about the source of what's coming into your mind and, and what's happening in our mind. It can be that the opinion of the world and the acceptance of people driven to fleshly passions is more important than what God thinks of us and his acceptance and his idea of what we are and who we are. Maybe, maybe we care more about what people think than what God thinks and his glory. Our Lord bought us. Our Lord owns us because of Jesus. Now we live for him, not for the sake of others' opinions. We will be slandered and maligned. So don't live for the sake of other people's opinions in fear of what they might say. Some of us fall on the other side. We couldn't care less what anybody says. Right? I'll do what I darn well please. <laughs> right? <laughs> but again, the same question comes, why or why not? Sometimes, many times, whatever I darn well please is a cover or an excuse for not taking seriously the, flesh, the fleshly passions, falling into sin or temptations. 
I don't care what other people think. I'll drink, I'll curse, I'll, you know, whatever it is, I'll just do it anyway because I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't answer to them. (laughs) And you're right, you do not answer to them, but we do answer to the Lord for whether we obeyed this grand command to be holy in all of our conduct for his glory. And part of bringing him glory is other people seeing our holy life and being attracted to the gospel. Some of the people who watch you may have been driven to submitting to him if they had seen that necessary change in your life. Now, again, we don't live as man pleasers. <laughs> we don't go around trying to make everybody happy and bowing to every whim of culture in sin. Oh, we don't worry about what everybody else thinks, all the slanderous things they will accuse us of, all the mean things that they're going to say. We don't live our lives for their, for their opinion, but we live our lives for what God thinks. And we fight the battle against sin and fleshly passions in our mind. And that comes out in our words and actions as good and holy conduct. And God will use that for his glory. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16? Let your light shine before men. Why? So that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus, this was Jesus' idea. (laughs) Holiness draws others to God. That's the hope of a believing wife with an unbelieving husband. Here in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, the unbelieving husbands may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. That's that's what we're after. I mean, we're after the glory of God, but what brings glory to God is when sinners repent and believe in him. Now, what may happen instead at times is chapter 3, verse 16 of 1 Peter here, where we're slandered rather than people coming to Jesus, and they just are shamed in the end. But God will be glorified even by that. What may happen is chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verses 4 and 5, where they malign us for holiness instead of coming to Jesus, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And that will glorify God also. But this is the consistent teaching of the New Testament that our conduct shows where our mind is and where our heart is and where our hope really is. Jesus said it. Peter said it. James talks about it in James 4. He says, why do Christians fight? Where do quarrels come from among you? It's because their passions are winning the war in their mind. That's when fights happen. You, You know, I want something, and I want something so much, I'll sin to get it. Or I want something so much that if I don't get it, then I'll sin right? There's this inseparable link between our mind, our thoughts, our beliefs, our affections, what we hope in, what we want, and what comes out in our mouths and what comes out in our actions. Do we long for God's glory or for our own? Paul says it another way in Galatians 5. If you'll turn there with me, we'll close with Galatians 5. So we can see it by Paul, yet another way, what Peter's talking about. And this, this battle that we're engaged in, uh, Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. Paul says, we have freedom in Christ. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to yoke of slavery. Verse 16, Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's that, there's that term again, right? For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, 
And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. The things you want to do are glorifying the Lord. The things that we want to do is, is worshiping Him and adoring Him and living those lives of holiness and love. But if, we can't do that if we're just falling for the flesh and the passions of the flesh. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Here's what it looks like in our life when we're falling to these fleshly passions. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Now you look at this list and <laughs> jealousy is next to sorcery, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I mean, these are all lumped together as, as what comes out of our flesh and out of our mouths when we're living in the flesh and the desires of the flesh. And things like these. I warn you, Paul says, as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, God hates sin. He hates my sin. E even though I'm I'm saved in Christ Jesus, my Lord. He still hates my sin, and it, it breaks my fellowship with him and with my brothers and sisters. But when our mind is in the Spirit, when our mind is set on the grace of God, when we're walking by the Spirit, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit within us, what comes out is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. Right? And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So Paul's teaching the same thing in a different way and showing for us where's our mind, where's our heart that comes out in our mouth and our actions. Our application for this morning for our passage here as beloved sons and daughters of God because again our identity individually and collectively together is no longer sons of wrath, children of disobedience, but as beloved sons and daughters of God, as beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, first we need to recognize fleshly desires. Recognize them, watch for them, and, and see them truly for what they are, right? Confess them and repent them when we recognize them. We need to see them and recognize them for what they are. Next, replace them with spiritual desires. The things that are above, where Christ is, in the heavenly places. On the, the grace of God who has saved us. Replace those fleshly desires with spiritual desires. What we really long for and hope for is how we'll act and how we'll speak. The things above, the spirit, Jesus. <laughs> Replace the fleshly desires with spiritual desires. Finally, realize the impact of this in your life and in others. When you do this, your life will change. But it's not for your glory, it's for the, your Savior's glory who's doing it in you. And it's not for everybody else to see and be amazed at you, it's for everyone else to see and be amazed at God and the grace of Jesus who does this. This will change the life of our brothers and sisters around us as well. That's how we live for the glory of God. That's how we live holy lives. That's how we live lives of love for the people around us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. God, we praise you for the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, sin is so revolting 
to you. Lord, you, you cannot be in the presence of sin. You are holy and you are perfect. God, so often we turn our back to you and we turn back to fleshly passions and we turn back to sin and we turn to the wrong things of this world. Father, we confess that. We pray that you would work in us to repent from that. Lord, to turn away from those, to turn to the actual, real, eternal good in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in your grace. God, the things of the world can be so attractive to us. They can be so pulling on us and tugging at us constantly. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep our minds right, that we would keep our minds focused on things above where Christ is, things, things for salvation, things that are pure and lovely and, and true, God, things that lead to holy lives. Father, we know that this will change us. So God, I pray that even as we pray for these things to be true in our lives, that you would protect us from pride that might swell up, God. That we know more or, or that we start to act better or we do things that people might notice. God, I pray that you would make us and keep us humble before you and that those things would bring glory to you. And Lord, all things will be done for your glory. Lord, make us better at living this kind of life thinking this kind of way, loving in these ways, Father. We ask this because we can't do it on our own. And we give you the glory and the credit and the praise and the worship. In Jesus' name, amen.